This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store, Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Broadcasting from the Ziggurat at Omaha in Caverns Deep below the metro area, it is our pleasure to welcome you to episode 710 of the Two-Headed Nerd Comic Book Podcast. I'm your head, number one. I'm back in town, and my name is Matt Baum. And I'm the Internet's Joe Patrick, but you can call me your head number two. In this long-awaited episode, we are back from summer vacation and reviewing comics from the last two new Comic Wednesdays. After that, we'll tell you, listeners, about our must-read new comic picks for next week. Finally, you'll get a sampling of our Patreon extra for this week. Just because you decided to ignore DC's Night Terrors event doesn't mean we did. And we've called in the official THN historian, Mr. Jason Sachs, to shed some light on the event's main hero for another edition of his Who the Hell is This Guy segment, the Dead Man Edition. It all starts now, so wake up, sleepy nerds, because it's review time in the Ziggurat! Our reviews begin with six comics from last week, and then we'll jump to six from this week. As always, we'll apply our completely unscientific buy it, skim it, or leave it ratings to each unfortunate comic. And let me tell you what, uh, there's a bunch of them that aren't going to fare so well this week. This time, our pile features the fastest Krakoan resurrection ever, Batman Beyond's journey to the center of Neo-Gotham. I guess. Sort of. Miller World's first crossover event and more, but it all starts with an adorable talking dog that fights robots. New comic book day, Wednesday, July 19th. Let's start with Scrapper, number one from Image. It's 32 pages, $3.99. This is written by Cliff Blazinski and Alex DeCampi. Main covers by Juan Ferreira with art by Sandy Gerald. Here's your solicit. Miniseries premiere. I'm glad we're back to this image. Thank you. Game design genius Cliff Blazinski, who worked on Gears of War and Fortnite, which is barely a game, makes his comics debut with critically acclaimed writer Alex DeCampi, who wrote Dracula, mother, which we loved, and Parasocial, and fan favorite artist Sandy Gerald, who worked on Bombshells and Lynx. Blade Runner-style action mixes with big emotions as stray dog Scrapper and his buddy Tank fight for justice against the totalitarian forces of a post-apocalyptic doomed city. But when the fight comes to his home, Scrapper will face losing what's most important to him and gain a terrifying truth in the process. Don't worry, Mom. The dog doesn't die. (laughs) Unlike Image's other talking dog comics, Stray Dog, Scrapper never moves into the unexpected realms of horror and sticks to a very superhero-driven narrative that imagines extreme gentrification in a dystopic future. Cruel robots patrol poor neighborhoods, seizing property when it falls below impossible corporate standards, while Scrapper and his buddy Tank patrol the streets like good boys. It quickly becomes apparent that Scrapper is not an ordinary dog, and there's a bit of mystery behind his origin, all of which is told through a Blade Runner sort of meets Don Bluth kind of narrative. 
ultimately, the story is cute at best with a twist that wasn't too hard to see coming. But it's Sandy Gerald's art that really shines. Gerald's pop art style and washed out colors give the comic a very classic animated feel, despite the future setting, and it works. Scrapper mixes sci-fi tropes with themes of corporate greed and AI running amok through the lens of a cartoonish superdog, but ultimately, that kind of gets lost in a story that's just a little too cute for its own good. I'm going to give this a skim it. I, like, I maybe was not fair to it the first time I read it. Second time, I like, first time I read it, I was like, that book is awful. It sucks. I hated it. So leave it. I read it again. And I like I, I appreciated it a lot more on second reading. Alex Campia is also here doing a lot of heavy lifting in terms of like scripting and stuff. And she is a known quantity and a, a, an established writer. She's great. We have, yeah. That we have uh, praised here on this very program. Um, she also writes things like Archie versus Predator. So, you know, your mileage may vary. I love Archie versus Predator. It was fun. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it's it's it is cute. And it's well told. The art is great. I love Sandy Gerald's art. The coloring is very nice. Um, I'm giving this a skim it as well because I, I think it's got a lot of things going on and it can't quite decide on a tone or or a, or, or a storytelling lane, if you will. Like, are we are we dealing with the dystopian stuff? Are we dealing with Scrapper and his weird mystery? Are we telling a cute dog story that's like that like saves little and befriends little girls? It, it, like. It's all over the place. So it's a skim it from me. But I will say this. Apologies to everyone involved. It's much better than I gave it credit for the first time. Let's take this party from the streets to the skies, baby. Because we ain't dealing with no hawk woman. We're dealing with hawk girl. She's a grown hawk girl. Thank you. (laughs) She's a grown ass girl, boys. Deal with it. Look, Hawk, nothing wrong with the name Hawk Girl. I would guess. It's from DC Comics. It's 32 pages for $3.99. It's written by Jadzia Axelrod. Art by Amon K. Nawelpan. I actually did see a phonetic spelling of his name when I looked up info about him today. Yeah, it is Amon, Amon K. Nawelpan. We've been doing that right, and I'm impressed. I'm totally impressed. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the only thing we slightly got wrong was putting the the... The emphasis on the wrong syllable with his first name. It's Amon K, not, well, not Amon K. Carried away because you're about to do the letterer in a minute here. So, well, you know, <laughs> I like baby steps. The letters are by T H N favorite Hassan Otsmani Elhau. Here's your solicit: soaring to new heights and baffling new foes. Oh, that actually says battling new foes. Battling, I'm sorry, but yeah. I, I think it's funnier if they're baffling. <laughs> they're like, Can what they're, is she doing up holy there? Holy shit! <laughs> Kendra Saunders, the winged warrior, better known as Hawkgirl, has been one of the DCU's greatest heroes for a long time, serving as a member of both the Justice League and the Justice Society. But with the Justice League disbanded, Kendra decides she needs a fresh start and heads to Metropolis to begin a new life. That life is quickly interrupted by a mysterious villain with a powerful connection to the nth metal that makes up Hawkgirl's wings and weapons. A brand new adventure with sky-high action, adventure, and intrigue begins here by Jadzia Axelrod, who wrote the graphic novel Galaxy, colon, The Prettiest Star. That's going to come up later. And Amon K. Nawelpan, who you may know from books such as Wonder Woman, Detective Comics, and The Flash. Hawkgirl number one puts the focus squarely on a character that has been pretty underserved by DC since the New 52 reboot in 2011, Her history as a long-serving member of the JSA has been restored, along with the team itself. 
In fact, writer Jadzia Axelrod doesn't seem to be ignoring anything from Hot Girl's history, including her time on Scott Snyder and Brian Michael Bendis' Justice League, her cursed immortal romance with Hawkman, and her ill-fated time as a member of the Blackhawks following her quote-unquote first appearance uh, during Dark Knight's Metal. Uh, I hate that shit. <laughs> they, write a, they write a character out of continuity. They did it with the New 52, too. Yeah. Did you know that Superman's first appearance was Action Comics yeah. number one, 2011? Fandom bullshit. God, it drives me nuts. Like, oh, oh that, no, no. You're thinking of the wrong Superman. That would be Superman from this. Stop it. Stop it. D- <laughs> DC does that shit. They encourage it. No, I know. There's a lot going on here, including the cutest alien invasion from little axe-wielding pot-bellied fire babies, but Axelrod handles it well. I love that her Superman is truly a Boy Scout going on about best practices when it comes to work-life balance. Like, he literally says <laughs> it was best, best practices. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Black Canary and Power Girl, her friends from the JSA, are genuinely concerned with her well-being since the Justice League broke up. This book is also... Ella diverse. That's right. I said it. Ella. Axelrod, a trans woman herself, packs the issue full of characters from all over the LGBTQIA plus spectrum, and none of it feels forced. They're just there. The tone is a little weird since Axelrod incorporates her creation, Galaxy, who first appeared in a young adult graphic novel from DC hence the mention earlier, while still dealing with a lot of heavy and violent stuff. In addition to the adorable little axe-wielding pot-bellied fire babies. Amon K. Noel Pan's art in this issue, yeah, it's, a, it's a real mixed bag. I really appreciated the effort he made to include a variety of different body types. You know, like the, there's no point in creating a book full of diverse characters if they're all going to look like Power Girl, right? Sure. And so for every Superman or Power Girl in this book, there's a character like Galaxy whose appearance is more Rubenesque. Look it up. I'm not explaining it to you. Even Hawkgirl looks more like an athlete than a supermodel. The layouts are interesting. They're highly detailed, but the proportions and the perspectives are all over the place. Characters sometimes loom over their surroundings or each other like giants. And Hawkgirl, who is historically a sleek and slender kind of athletic on par with, say, like an Olympic swimmer or a gymnast, is drawn more like an imposing bruiser like Ronda Rousey, like the female Hawkman who is just Conan with wings. And that's not, that's not right. That's pardon me. That's not how she's been depicted in the past. Girls shouldn't, girls should be sexy, right, Joe? No, that's (laughs) not what I said. And curvy. I got you. (laughs) That's not what I didn't say. Curvy either. (laughs) Like there was one panel where Kendra meets her old friend for lunch, where they show Kendra standing up while the friend is sitting down at the diner. And I had to stare at that panel for a full five minutes because it looked like Kendra was 10 feet tall standing next to that table. And I, I couldn't figure out if it was me. Like it was, am I looking at it? Am I seeing it wrong? No, but I think it's wrong. She's drawn huge. Definitely. I don't mind a big hawk girl. I think hawk girls should be imposing. She should be tough and I don't, and should be strong. I I don't have a problem with that at all, but there were times where like you didn't draw her human. Like you drew it like big Barda. Right. Like that. Right. Uh, So that scene in particular, that wasn't really like, Oh, her figure is different. No, that was, no, she's, a problem with the she's a literal like giant person yeah so 
when Hawkgirl was introduced in um, in the JSA series that started in 1999 by James Robinson and David Goyer and Steven Sadowski, the artist, people actually complained, men actually complained online that Hawkgirl was petite and not stacked. Like she wasn't sexy, you know, beefy, sexy. Like she was athletic and slim and that's how I've always pictured her. And that's how, to me, that's Hawkgirl. And so to see her as this kind of imposing, you know, tank almost, it's, it's kind of weird. I don't mind it at all. I thought she looked badass. That, it, it's fine. I'm just, that's just my, you know, I'm just giving you my point of view. Hassan Otsmani Elhao is doing some really interesting things with the lettering in this issue. Word balloons aren't afraid to veer off in unexpected directions. And we get lots of artistic text aside from just the sound effects. It did take a bit of getting used to, but I thought it was really cool when all was said and done. Hawkgirl number one gives Kendra Saunders a welcome return to the spotlight. While I did have some issues with the execution, the creative team shows a lot of promise. I'm giving it a strong skimmit. I like Hawkgirl a lot in general. I do too. I, I kind of like this Hawkgirl though. I like her being a little bigger and, and a little more imposing. Like the Hawks, they should be scary when they show up. Hawkman, he's a ripped up dude. He's scary as hell. And I get it. Like the Anth Metal gives them their powers or whatever, but I like it. And I, I thought it looked but, really uh, good. There were some aspects where the point of view was strange and it definitely made her look way too big in some positions. Like, I think there's a middle ground we can hit where she can still be very athletic and very strong, you know, but she doesn't have to be nine feet tall either. I think it works for the character. And I think it works for the story that they're telling where everyone's worried about her because she has this big, tough exterior, but we keep cutting to these scenes of her crumpled into a ball on the floor, having emotional issues that she's not dealing with. And I, and I kind of liked how they set that up for the character. It, not to say like, oh, making her broken. Now she's interesting. But it does give her some personality that we can relate to. And like other major athletes that are incredible at their job that have these emotional issues on the side because of what they do. And they're not oh, yeah. dealing with it for whatever, man. I, I think it's interesting. And I and I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up because I, I forgot to mention it in my review. Like the fact that she's got this kind of emotional thing going on yeah. is really compelling. It's like a very Naomi Osaka type situation, tennis player who is super talented, but she is having a lot of trouble dealing with the stress of being a famous athlete. And it's definitely hurt her game. And she's trying to figure out how to balance these things, you know, and Kendra's faking it right now. And just being tough, because that's what she knows how to do. I think it's kind of cool. The galaxy thing, I mean, whatever. If you want to bring this character in because you created her, fine. I didn't know who it was. I didn't really get it. And there was already a lot going on in the comic. So much so that I don't know if it needs it. But maybe she's going to be a part of this larger story. We shall see. I'm going to give this a strong skimmit as well. I was borderline by it. I think there was just a little too much going on with this galaxy character. I, I didn't need it. No, I, I, I agree. Think you had plenty I, like, going on with Hawkgirl already. I, I'm with you. There was a lot, there was a lot to, to unpack in this comic. And on top of galaxy already being this new thing that we are expected to be curious about. Yeah. So it just yeah. didn't need it a little too much. And what about when you're not catching criminals when you're not at work? What about it? Well, is there a hawk boy? 
Let's move from DC to a galaxy far, far away for the only comic book starring Admiral Akbar this week. It's Star Wars Return of the Jedi, The Rebellion, written by another Alex, Alex Segura, with cover by Ryan Brown, art by Matt Horak, Brent Peoples, and Rafael Pimentel. I'm not sure what they all did, but they're all listed as artists. (laughs) (laughs) Colors by Jim Campbell with letters by VC's Travis Lanham. Here is your solicit. I grew up with a guy named Matt Horak. Oh, maybe it's him. No, really. No relation. You don't know. First, I do. I do know. know. The second I saw his name, I was like, it can't be. You do know. Here's your solicit. Mon Mothma must die. Admiral Akbar is the only one with the knowledge of the Empire's plan to kill Mon Mothma. It's like they write these in all caps. So if you're just glancing around, you'll see certain names, I guess, and be like, I'm interested. Get yeah, it. you know we've we've talked about this. Is like like whenever uh, whenever a company writes a solicit, oftentimes they will all caps the names the proper names of their characters. I guess so. You're just scanning through and it catches your eye or something. And it's like oh shit, Shara Bay, sign me up because the cover you know? is not enough apparently. Enter right. Poe Dameron's parents, Shara Bay and Cass Dameron to thwart the threat. But do they have what it takes to take down the unknown assassin in time? Spoilers, Mon Mothma's alive in Return of the Jedi. So, yeah, everything's fine. (laughs) The Adventures of Poe Dameron's parents starts here with them foiling a pretty generic plot to kill Mon Mothma. I get that Mothma is brave and defiant, but here she comes off as almost suicidally stupid, agreeing to a meeting in a wide open area by herself after Admiral Akbar had warned her of the assassination attempt. She basically looks at Akbar and she's like, no, no, they need to know that if they kill me, the rebellion goes on so much so that I'm going to go stick myself in danger and get killed to prove it. Like, I'm going to put my head in the oven right what now. What kind of a leader are you? <laughs> uh, and you know what? I, I realize that the rebellion has limited resources, but I don't believe for one second that a figure as important as Mon Mothma doesn't have some sort of secret service. Right. I mean, like, there's a reason why we don't put a gun he in the president's hand and send me? the president to war when it happens, right? Someone's got to lead stuff, you know? Luckily for her, the assassin has to watch her through a scope for what feels like three ages before actually taking a really bad shot it is it is an eternity it is ridiculous the setup is fine here but the plot becomes so simple it seems like very little thought went into the story the art is solid i like that horek makes the rebellion ships look dingy and and like a really busy place it helps with the scrappy look and feel of the rebellion versus the empire's hermetically clean ships I didn't love Kess's weird chin beard, though, and I found both the main characters forgettable at best. For the beginning of a series, maybe a miniseries, I'm not really sure, honestly, this didn't do much to get me excited about Poe's mom and dad, but really just felt like a filler story that takes place before Return of the Jedi, where, like I said, we know Mon Mothma's going to be around, so not very high stakes at all. I'm going to give this a skim it. I mean, I can't call it a leave it, because it's not a failure of a Star Wars story, but when it was done, I went, great. <laughs> not going to get that time back. I mean, I guess, I guess, yes. It, it, it's a, it's the definition of a skimmit, right? Like, there's yeah. no reason for you to, re- there's no reason for you to read this comic. I would argue it's a definition of a Marvel Star Wars comic book these days. Hey-o. Hey-o. Zinger!
there's no reason for you to read this unless you are a Star Wars super fan or a Poe Dameron completist or whatever. I guess. Or you've got a Mon Mothma back tattoo. I don't know. Well, and we, we were talking about it on Discord. They do this thing, like there's this big reveal of this character and they're like, oh my God, it's this guy. And and you and I were both well, like, well, maybe we're not following Star Wars comics. Maybe that guy's been around. No, he has not. It's a character that's mentioned in the Poe Dameron novel. He's made one like appearance six uh, yeah. years ago. Like he made one appearance in a novel that was set during the time of the sequel trilogy. Right. So 30, 30 years later and he dies in it. Yeah. Uh, spoiler alert. That is not Kandaba. a reveal. There's like, there's nothing here where it's like, Oh, they finally yeah. introduced this thing or that guy or like whatever. Yeah. And I didn't read the solicit. And so when you told me when we were, ch- uh, you know, texting and, and chatting on discord and you said something about Poe Dameron's parents, I'm like, what? Because there's nothing like they don't say Dameron. They just say Cass and whatever her name is. They don't refer to them by their full names at all. Now, Admiral Ackbar does say Cass Dameron. He, he's like, all right, well then I missed like, that's on me then. Like, Cause I missed me Cass Dameron or whatever. But like, the, but I think a bigger point is this could have been any character and it would have read well, yeah. the exact well, same then, way. They could have been droids. It would have read the same sure. way. <laughs> and uh, like, this is not the first, like Pess, uh, Pess, um, Poe's parents were introduced in the comics years ago. So this isn't yeah. like some big first appearance. This is, they're just there. The more I think about the thing with the sniper scope and how long it took him to take that shot for a, an alien that's got an IG droids head replacing one of his little eye stalk thingies. Why did he have to look in the scope at all? Plot. That's why. why? Plot. Right. Joe. Right. But that's it. Yeah, which means, which means that's, that's lame. Yeah. <laughs> so like, it, it makes Mon Mothma look bad at her job and the assassin look bad at his job. And it's like, how are you hired to do this? I would not hire you. And I am neither looking for someone to lead the rebellion or an assassin, but in this theoretical like situation, no, you're both fired. <laughs> you're too dangerous. Yeah, and you're a you terrible shot. <laughs> this is a, this is a, uh, this is a leave it from me. I think you're right. I think this is a leave it. And again, it be, it's not, it's certainly not the worst thing I've ever read, but, and the art is nice, but, the character's actions make no sense. Yeah. Like the story is nonsensical. Yeah. You couldn't come up and with a like, better assassination plot than this. Yeah. No, this will leave it. It's, it's not worth your time. Jeepers. What is it? Augie Ben doggy. Did you feel a great disturbance in the force as if millions of voices cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced? No, just with a headache. Buckle up Millar bros. The first major crossover of Miller World is here. It's big game number one from Image Comics. It's 32 pages for $4.99. It is written by Mark Miller. Art by Pepe Larraz. Colors by Giovanna Nero. And letters by Clem Robbins. And here's your solicit. Miniseries premiere. Buckle up for the solicit, first yeah, of all. No doubt. The comics event of the summer is here. Okay. This is so top secret. We can't even show you the main cover because it spoils something massive. It really didn't. It, it didn't It's at like all. three pages in. Yeah. Just trust us when we say that this is going to be the comic book event of 2023 and it's not what you're expecting. I guess I'll give him that because Mark Miller never told anybody what big game was going to be. Yeah, we didn't know what to expect. <laughs> does the crossover really go that wide? Yes, it does. 
Big Game pulls together Kick-Ass, Kingsman, Nemesis, The Magic Order, and all the Miller World franchises in one special event, including the one they claim they didn't want to spoil. This must be ordered like crazy. <laughs> Listen, before I get into it, I mean, good. I really, I really hate solicits that talk to me like it's a conversation. But they're going for it. I'll give them that. No, I get it that they're going for it. This has nothing to do with the comic. It's like, don't, don't talk to me like we're in the middle of a conversation at the comic shop. Just give me the details and shut up. The solicit is correct, though. Big game number one does indeed go for it. It touches on nearly every project in Miller World's catalog, though not necessarily all in this first issue. Not only that, but it serves as a direct sequel to Spoilers Wanted, arguably Miller's most well-known property. Sorry, kick-ass. The story begins in the past, where we see how Wesley Gibson's father and his friends made the world forget that superheroes ever existed. Flash forward to the present day, and the slow re-emergence of the Fantastic has the secret rulers of the world, now led by a decidedly less Eminem-looking Wesley himself, feeling pretty antsy. Their solution? Stick Miller World's anti-Batman nemesis on the problem. One thing I'll say for Miller is that he does not beat around the bush. This series is only like five or six issues long, and so the dude wastes no time. Even with the recap at the beginning, or the flashback, I guess I should say. Yeah, flashback. Miller is able to touch base with the newly introduced ambassadors, reconnect with the star of the fan favorite Starlight series, which I was very happy to yeah. see. And so, he better not. He better not die. And set up a compelling secondary mystery with the world's smartest man, Edison Crane, star of Prodigy. You might not remember that one. I don't think I ever actually read it. Prodigy is great. Pretty, Prodigy is heard it was really good, though. Good. Yeah, I heard yeah. it was good. Oh, yeah. And you know what? Kick-Ass is here, too. So apologies to Kick-Ass. Miller does a great job keeping the pace going while weaving between the huge cast. And I'm eager to see how he incorporates characters from his other series. Like, are we going to see like the King of Spies in here? I kind of doubt it. I think, you know, we will. As a matter of fact, well, he, there's he no said way it's going to touch these, everything. So there is no way that some of these books exist in a world where there's magic and superpowers. Though, I mean, man, there, I, there's I don't spies. Know. There's spies. There could be spies. Prove me spy wrong. Stuff. Prove me wrong. Prove me wrong, Mark. Uh, like, if Kingsman's here, why not King of Spies? Exactly. Now, I'll say this, however. He's got some convincing to do if he expects me to believe that the Magic Order lives in this world and they don't know about all this shit. No, okay. Are you, How does the Magic Order not know? Are you caught up on the Magic Order? In fact, I am not. Okay. I'm not caught up on the most recent volume. Okay, because, I mean, without spoiling anything. Well, they were around in 1986, I'm though. not saying they weren't. I'm saying... It could be very apparent that they don't give a shit. They're doing their own thing. Ooh, okay. All right. Hey, <laughs> yeah. there's, a little, there's a little incentive to get caught up on the magic order. The art by Pepe Larraz and Giovanna Nero is absolutely gorgeous. It's full of exciting layouts and explosive bursts of colorful action. Mark Miller is a writer that can really get under my skin sometimes. And I hated the first wanted series. Hated it. But. When the dude is on, he's on. We've said it before. Like, credit words, too. When Miller is fully on board and behind a project creatively, 
big game number one gets a buy it, man. I thought it was awesome. Yeah, I don't agree at all that there isn't a world where all the stuff can live together. Because look at the Marvel universe. You know, look at the DC well, yeah, universe. Yeah, I get it. But, you know, I like some of these things. Like, there's no reason he, why he can't. Cr- and they're his. So he can do whatever he wants with them. Oh, I and know that he can. It's just like. I also okay, think he well, is clever Kingsman, enough really? to sell it. I think he's more than clever enough to sell it. And this first issue does all the things that a big event comic needs to do. Does it quickly so we know this is not going to be padded out this is going to be action 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 i think he's listened to everybody whining about big events that take forever or get spread out too much or well too padded out at marvel and dc and he's like okay i'm gonna do this one my way here we go i am on board this is an absolute buy it and you know what it does a job it got me excited about all these characters. Like I got to catch oh, up with yeah. ambassadors. I got to catch like, up. Now. I, oh, ambassadors is great. Ambassadors is great. Oh, I know it's good. I'm I just not to, caught up. Yeah. Yeah. No, I need to get caught up on the magic order. I need to finish prodigy. Yeah. Or I need to start, start prodigy. Um, so in defense, now that I've, now that we've been talking it through in defense of like King of spies being here and Kingsman being here and then, you know, not knowing anything, the world forgot, man, the world forgot. Yeah. So maybe in the tw- in the twenties or whatever, the Kingsman, the the Secret Service knew about superheroes. Yeah, the majority of that was in World War One, and then there was some stuff in World War Two. But it's been a long time. I, and I was a little bit confused about where exactly the Jupiter's children kind of situation. We'll fits find out. In. We'll find out. But yeah, man, fantastic. Good job. <laughs> While we're catching up, let's check in on the redheaded she-devil, Red Sonia. She's got a new number one, and it's volume seven at Dynamite. Boy, boy, oh boy. 36 pages at $3.99, written by Torin Gronbeck, cover by Shannon Mayer. By the way, there are 20 variants in all, one of which is a kick-ass Magnola variant. How old do you think that Mac Magnola drawing is? I don't know. Because I don't doubt for one second that Dynamite just takes old art that they, I mean, they got to get his permission or whatever. No, no, no. I'm not saying that like they stole it. I'm saying that like, I will say it looks like, I don't know that Mike Vignola is out there drawing new dynamite comics. variants. It does look like his recent style though. I will say I could be wrong, man. I could be wrong. He could be a fan. This has art, internal art by Walter Giovanni inks by Omi Remolanti jr. With letters by Simon Boland. And here is your solicit. Following directly from the pages of Red Sonia Zero, the she-devil finds herself on the run, framed for murder, and with an unseen force tugging at the back of her mind. Join Sonia as she races to unravel the mystery of his master's voice. Written by Torn Gronbeck and featuring the art of Red Sonia superstar Walter Giovanni, with colors by... I already said all this. The brand new series dives deep into Sonia's world, exploring the darkness of Hyboria, not Hyperborea, sorry... Exploring the darkness of Hyboria like never before. And all this. But Hyperborea is a thing, right? Yes. This is Hyboria, okay. though. Yeah, yeah. We don't need to get into it. I just am confirming for my own. Yes. Mental health. And all this is wrapped up in an amazing series of covers by 20 different people. So there you go. (laughs) The solicit isn't kidding. When it says this picks up after issue zero, it means it. So much so that if you didn't read zero, 
I didn't, there's a good chance you're going to feel like me and you just walked into issue four. There's a lot going on. There's a crooked religious leader, a starving town, maybe some magic that makes people forget things and want to kill Red Sonia, and a lot of names thrown around that might mean more to someone who has been reading the series or maybe just read issue zero. I find it hard to believe this was all set up in a zero issue, though. The art is good in some panels, but inconsistent with some strange action here or there. There's a lot of like silhouette work used in the foreground instead of like in the background where I'm used to it. And sometimes on characters that are in action, like there's a scene where Sonya's leg is completely blacked out and the guy he's fight, the guy she's fighting looks to be 10 feet tall and also has a black leg. It, it just looks like the artist forgot to draw some things. <laughs> I've liked some of Gronbeck's work, but this didn't feel like a good jumping on point, and it relied a little too much on Sonya's snark to carry the story. Like, that's our Sonya, know what I mean? Uneven art and a cluttered story that was set up in a previous issue aren't doing this number one any favors. I'm giving it a skim it. I mean, yeah. All, all the things you said are accurate. Uh, it's It's fine. It's fine. But... I mean, I didn't understand anything that was going on. Yeah, it's main flaw. I was like, this I, is issue one, you guys. Come on. I haven't read a Red Sonia comic since maybe when they made a big deal of Gail Simone coming to Dynamite to write it. And that was years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, have, I have no clue what's going on in the pages of Red Sonia. And so to label this a number one, you know what? This Magnolia cover is labeled M. 23. So I apologize. This is a new piece of art for them to label this a number one, even to say like, I hope you read the zero issue. Well, it's like, mm, sure, but it's a number one. So you should probably expect that a lot of people have not read the zero issue. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's they a dynamite certainly thing. have not read. They certainly have not read the last like five other volumes. No, maybe it's a dynamite thing and we don't know. And like all their books start with zero. So pay attention folks. You know, I, maybe that's, I it. don't, but I don't, Thinks so. you know what I'm looking at that I'm looking at that panel with the black limbs. It, it's weird. Like I I see what it, what the dude's going for. It's supposed to be shading, but it's so abruptly like cut off at like the joints. It does look like they are wearing gigantic black sleeves or they have artificial black limbs. Right. I mean, and, and there's the play. It's or one thing where you're like, this character is talking and there's some characters that are silhouetted in the background because they're not important yeah, yeah, or they're it, just it, background. But when the silhouette is in the foreground, it, yeah, it's, unless nah, it's supposed to be, you're looking at someone's back and it's a secret as to who they good. are. It doesn't that's work. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's a skim it. It's a skim it. Uh, like it's yeah. again, it's not a failure. Uh, like it is a, it is a, a successfully told narrative comic book with artwork that is certainly decent. But if you aren't already a fan of the current yeah. dynamite red Sony series, you're going to be totally lost. I'll come with you. I don't need any man's help. Don't sheath that sword just yet, Matt. It's time for blade. Number one. Just from Marvel Comics. The, just in time for the movie that's not coming anytime soon. <laughs> maybe never, really. I don't know. It's 40 pages for $4.99. It's written by Brian Hill with art by Elena Big House Casagrande with colors by Jordi Belair 
and letters by VCs Joe Sabino. Did they just get that guy? I don't, I don't think I've ever seen that name. Or did um, I mean, I've seen Joe Sabino's name before, okay. so I don't, I can't tell you for sure. VCs building a gang, though. I'll tell you what, they do. They they are man. That's like you, if they're not careful, they could field a baseball team at this point. I think <laughs> if we're not careful. VC is going to end up like Cobra with like 1 billion yeah. active members. All and then it's the over letterers. For everybody. They have all the letterers. Marvel's slickest vampire hunter returns in a brand new ongoing series by Brian Hill of Killmonger fame and Elena Casagrande, most recently of Black Widow, or at least as far as Marvel wants to tell you. True evil is patient and a dark ancient power has been simmering quietly for centuries. And when Blade himself is the one to unknowingly unleash it, Marvel's entire supernatural underworld will come out of hiding to demand he handle it or pay a pound of flesh for his mistakes. Bloodbaths, blackmail, and blade. You won't want to miss the explosive first issue of this new volume. The first issue of Marvel's latest attempt at a blade series opens with a scene that immediately evokes memories of the beginning of the first Wesley Snipes Blade film. Was it Blade 2 where they're in the club? No, Blade Blade 1. Uh, they're in the they're in the they're in the meat processing plant in oh, the back oh, room oh. where there's a secret nightclub. The bloodbath scene, we all know it. There's a human caught way over her head in a bar secretly overrun with vampires and she's only saved by the timely intervention of Blade when the daywalker plows his car straight through the front door. UV headlights beaming. I thought that I was kick-ass. <laughs> that was like the idea that his car has UV headlights Hell that yeah. kill vampires Hell is yeah. like seriously. I was tickled, tickled by it. The only things missing here are Steven Dorf and Wesley Snipes gift-worthy fist pump. Brian Hill does an excellent job delivering a back-to-basics approach to the character. There's no extra baggage. There's no agonizing over his long-dead mother. And nothing about the sheriff of Vampire Town or even Baby Man thing. Yeah. It's just Blade, some swords, and a fly-as-hell suit. Like, dude, look cool as hell in this guy. You have said hella and fly in this episode, sir. I know, so, right? Like, we're going to have to talk about your, uh, your guys' look, grocery man, games intake. If this continues. Not everybody is as hip <laughs> as me, playa. I'm sorry. Hill introduces exactly two supporting characters in this issue, and one doesn't even seem like he's too long for this world. It really is all about Blade and his mission to save one girl from every asshole on Earth with a pair of fangs. But before you think it's too basic, Hill pulls the rug out from under you and takes the story in a completely different direction. Elena Casagrande's art is absolutely brutal, hyper-violent, buckets of black gore, Exactly what you want from a Blade comic. Very, very well done. Plus, she puts, like, this is a total art nerd thing. She uses a lot of variation in the line weight and even the hardness of her brush strokes, which keeps things very visually interesting. Yeah. Like, some things have this kind of soft focus, and that's because she's using a softer brush. Yeah. Even, like, the movement. It's like, it's, it's like it loses focus because, like, Blade is moving so just, fast. Just it's ever like, so slightly, right? Drag. And it's not even that. It's like when, like, when some things need to be emphasized over others, it's like, oh, that they have different, you know, different variations of focus. Yeah. It's wonderful. I don't know why it is so hard for Marvel to come out with a Blade series that actually lasts. This is volume five or six, depending on who you ask. And the legacy number on the cover 
is only 29, <laughs> which by the way, do that is, <laughs> I, I can. And I did. It's wrong. You can see a list of every blade series on Marvel fandom. And the issue count is supposed to be way higher. What are you trying to hide? Marvel? Just give us more of this. You guys, I loved it. It's a buy it. It's great. Yeah, the, the reason Marvel can't make a Blade series last is, and I'm, I'm not like attacking everyone that's ever written a Blade comic, but they come in with these ideas that are just like so convoluted and so big for the character where they think we got to fundamentally change something about his past or give him a brand new job or make him the leader of S.H.I.E.L.D. or some shit. Like, stop, stop. Just yeah. let him be Blade. And that's what they're doing here. And they're doing it with an excellent artist. It's just back to basics, Blade. I hope, I hope if we ever do see this movie, it is very much in this spirit. No bullshit. We already made one good Blade movie, one excellent Blade movie, and then a really bad Blade movie. You know, but and the things that were good about it was just Wesley Snipes being a badass that kills vampires. Don't forget the TV show. Just do it. I'm forgetting the TV show. The TV show Blade is the terrible. series, baby. <laughs> Starring <laughs> Sticky Fingers. <laughs> Not counting yet. I'm giving this a huge buy it, though. I'm excited to read a Blade comic monthly again. Yeah, man. It's so good. Really, really good. New comic book day, Wednesday, July 26th. We begin this week with a return to Wonderland, Alice Never After, number one from Boom. It's 32 pages, 399. It's written by Dan Panosian with art by Panosian and Gerogio Spalletta, covers by Fabiana Mascolo and letters by Jeff Eckleberry. Wowie zowie. A lot of Italians. A lot of Italians. That's fine. You know, here's your solicit. Totally. Alice finally got her wish. Wonderland has become her new home. But with her abuser's avatar, with the uncanny grin, turning the mad residents of Moonstruck World against her, she's clawing for a little rationality amongst the chaos. As Alice's sister Edith and her childhood friend Earl fight for a way to bring her back, Alice has to contend with whether or not her torment is due to her father, herself, or maybe a curious combination of both. Superstar writer Dan Panosian worked on The Unkindness of Ravens and Black Tape, and artist Giorgio Spalletta, who worked on Double 007 for King and Country, we just reviewed hey, not too long ago. isn't the one that we just reviewed? Yeah. Yeah. He's really good. good. Explore the morbid side of escapism in this twisted tale that blurs the line between fantasy and reality. Panosian is one of my favorite artists working today, and he's become a double threat in the last few years, writing some truly original stories like Slots at Image, the recent Black Tape at AWA, both of which we gave great reviews. But now he's returning to the Alice in Wonderland series he started at Image last year. And frankly, I just don't get it. The comic is an artistic wonder with Panosian drawing the story set in London and Spoletta drawing Wonderland and its insane cast. It, it's perfectly researched art and it captures the feel of Alice's story, albeit in this version, she seems to be locked in her own imagination and something fiendish is going on with the doctors that treated her. I never read the first chapter because, full disclosure, I just don't care about Alice in Wonderland. I get it. No, it's a classic. No. It's a classic. It's very important. Don't care. Totally get it. I don't 
care. I don't need your. I'll watch the. Uh, you know what? If somebody says, "Hey, let's watch the old cartoon," sure. like if I if, I if my niece if my niece wants to watch it, yeah, I'll watch it. But like that's the extent of my. I don't care. need to go to an Alice in Wonderland themed bar. I don't need to eat your Alice in Wonderland themed. I don't want to play American <laughs> McGee's yeah. Alice. Don't need no. it. Everything about this comic is perfectly executed. I just, I couldn't get invested in the story. Maybe I'm the wrong audience. And if you do have an affinity for the classic Alice story, this comic is definitely for you. The added plot point of the real world story might be better if I read the first series. And while I never felt lost, I just don't care. <laughs> I'm giving this a skim it. I'm sorry, Dan. You're a great writer. I just don't care about Alice in Wonderland. Okay, look, I, I don't either. And I'm not, I'm just going to say this. There's nothing wrong with this comic. Nothing. No, nothing. It's it like, there's nothing about the writing or the art that I found egregious at all. The art's excellent, as a matter of fact. I just, right. In fact, I'll even say this. When I was reading this today, earlier today, uh, it went, it transitioned from the real world parts to the Wonderland parts. And I'm like, why did they switch artists? Like, why did, why didn't Dan Panosian just draw this? Because at first there's nothing that different or better about it. But then things in Wonderland start to get weirder and weirder and weirder and weirder. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh, 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 I get it. This guy is a monster. This, this artist, he's tremendous. Yeah. So yeah, visually stunning. The writing is fine. I just a never read the other one, so I have no idea what's happening. And B don't give a shit about Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. So it's a skim it. However, you might love it. So by all means, give it a look see. Yeah, it's it's definitely a clever take on this classic. But if you don't care about the classic, I can't say it's going to rope you in. tell you what is my thing though body horror it's the ribbon queen number one from awa it's 32 pages for 3.99 matt just mentioned awa a second ago and uh, we're gonna talk about that it's written by garth ennis with pencils by jason burrows inks by guillermo ortego colors by dan brown letters by rob steen with a cover by declan shalvey a lot of names here but not as many names as a comic book i'm going to talk about at the end of the of the end of the segment. Here's a solicit. There is something ancient and terrible loose in the world of men, something that hates them with a burning passion that bears a grudge born tens of thousands of years ago. That's not exactly what that said, but my eyes lost focus, and so I read it on the fly. Something that wants its revenge. NYPD detective Amy Sun has a problem. Three years ago, a young woman was rescued from a serial killer by a police tactical unit. Now she's dead. And Amy has a bad feeling that the SWAT team leader is responsible. As she investigates the existence of a corrupt cabal within her own precinct, Detective Sun soon discovers that there is something else on their trail. A force of vengeance older than the human race itself has awoken, invoked by the tormented murder victim in the weeks before she died, and is out for the blood of the guilty who soon find themselves suffering a fate more gruesome than anything they could have dreamed of. The Ribbon Queen has come to New York City, and when she learns the truth, Amy is not at all certain that it should be stopped. 
Wow. That solicit got more intense as we went, wow. and so I decided to ramp up my voice acting. I think everybody got it. <laughs> so. To kind of meet, to rise to the occasion. Uh, hey, we here at THN have gone on the record responding to AWA's output with a resounding, meh. Overall, it's not that the books are bad. We've liked some, and we had lots of favorable things to say about Sins of the Sultan Sea a few weeks ago. But most of their books just feel pretty easy to ignore, for me, at least. But you put out something by Garth Ennis, and suddenly you have my attention. I don't really have anything to add to the solicit other than my stellar voice work. So I'll just say that Garth Ennis brings the same excellent character work he's known for to the police horror procedural. And honestly, I could have happily read an entire series that was just about the cop stuff. But I guess Jason Burroughs is here for a reason, so here we go. The page turn that reveals the gruesome wrath of the Ribbon Queen is truly horrific. Like, yuck. But the rest of the issue looks just as impressive. Burroughs has always been good, but he has come a long way from the old Avatar days. There's even the rare back matter essay from Ennis that gives a little bit of personal perspective to his gruesome tale. And I really thought it was interesting. And I look forward to seeing what bits from that he puts in this story in future issues. The Ribbon Queen number one ended up on my list because, frankly, I just needed something to round out my reviews. It ended up being a really great surprise and the first AWA book that I genuinely loved. I'm giving this a buy it. I, I was riveted. You know, this is the team behind Crossed, right? Look, man, I know who they are. Okay. I, you just never mentioned it. And like, it's kind of the bit they're reuniting, you know, that's kind of the big thing. Here. You know what? The, <laughs> I, I, sorry. Like uh, I, the solicit never said a damn word no, about, uh, they're not mentioning it because the, cre the creators. Yeah. Yeah. They're so. just, they're just talking about their stuff. Well, yeah, you're right. This is, I, I get, well, this is was the cross Jason, team. Are, well, Jason Burroughs. Are you sure? Yes. They created it together. Absolutely. Okay. They also worked on, the I, I wasn't sure if it was that Juan Jose rip. No, he worked, he worked on some other stuff definitely as well, but like totally different style. I love rip uh, though. I always like uh, Burroughs. I, yeah. I remember like my, my memory of Jason Burroughs is from drawing the like earliest avatar comics I ever remember seeing, which, um, was that Warren Ellis series, like strange kiss or strange yeah, killings. Sure. Like it had multiple volumes. That yeah. was Jason Burroughs. Yeah. And he's great. And so I was ready for it going into it. Like, you know what you're going to get when these two get together, they're going to do the thing. No question. Yeah. And I mean, that's how, that's why I knew, like I knew there wasn't going to be just a simple police serial sure, killer story, but the setup is really good in the same way. Sort of like it reminded me of a film like Takashi Miike's edition where you're watching one thing for almost three quarters of the film. And then something happens when you go, oh my God, this is a nightmare. I don't even know if I want to watch anymore, you know, <laughs> but you're already in at that point too late. I they mean, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And man, yeah. The reveal, fantastic. The art is really good. And this is just a very strong writer. And I like that the team from crossed gets back together, but doesn't immediately hit you with the meat in the face. Like they did with crossed. They're taking it, some time. Like, that could have been literal. That could have been a literal thing. Yeah. Considering maybe they are going to that place. It's not there yet. I really enjoyed this. and I'm giving it a bite. Not 
all comics can be as well-paced as the one we just read, let's talk about Batman Beyond Neo-Gothic, number one, from DC. It's 32 pages for $3.99. This is written by Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing. Your boys. I, I love them. Art by Max Dunbar, with colors by Sebastian Chang, and letters, again, by our boy Hassan Asmane Alao. Here's your solicit. Terry McGinnis defeated the evil AI controlling Neil Gotham and asserted himself as the one true Batman. But this next battle will bring him to the remains of old Gotham. Children are going missing and being swallowed by the city's old bones. Batman Beyond will have to go underground, led by a mysterious splicer named Kyle the Cat Boy. It's not just Kyle. His name is Kyle Selina. Get it? Well, he's Do an you experiment. Get it? It's like Kyle. It's like Kyle Selina underscore uh-huh. one. Like he, it's he's an experiment to find the children and confront the city's buried sins. What happened to the green of the city? What happened to magic? And what villains never left old Gotham? All these questions will be answered by the red hot creative team of Colin Kelly and Jackson Glanzing. Worked on Batman, One Bad Day, Clayface, Captain America, Sentinel of Liberty. Oh, they also worked on the previous version of Batman Beyond. You might mention that. I don't know. They're also currently <laughs> writing Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. For those of you keeping And forward. Max Dunbar, who worked on Batman Urban Legends. Kelly and Lansing return to Batman Beyond after their last Neo Year series, which I admit I never finished, but I did like. Terry is back with a new boxier suit that Dunbar and Chen illustrate as a glowing sort of Tron reminiscent battle armor, and it really looks great. I read another reviewer that was talking about this comic, and they were like, I hated it, but I also thought they pulled it off so well that it looked kick ass. <laughs> like it was like in I both mean, places at the same time. Where it almost the thing looks is, is that, like the, the original Batman Beyond suit is just a plain black right. bodysuit with a red bat on it. Yeah. Now they made it a lot boxier and flashier. And, and yeah. I dig it. Their Gotham is a neon Blade Runner meets Tim Burton's Gotham, and it looks really great. The story, however, sort of seems to have it be a really heavy-handed play on Dante's Inferno with Terry following this splicer. Remember the teens that spliced their DNA with animal DNA to be cool in the cartoon? Mm-hmm. Well, no. there's a gang I of them. And they're, I, never, I never watched Batman Beyond. And they're cat boys with an eye. That's dumb. And that cat boy is going to be taking Batman into the depths of old Gotham to investigate the disappearance of several children. The story seems to have some type of phantom narrator which made sense when they did it in the last series because terry was fighting this living gotham ai but here he's beaten the gotham ai and it's not really clear who is narrating between panels yet pair of the heavy-handed story it's not it's not the robotic alfred in the bat cave no i don't think so because the robotic alfred in the bat caves doesn't talk like that the narrator thing is like doing this poetic narration and the robotic Batcave thing just talks like a robot. Let me look at it again. Keep going. Like I didn't, I didn't catch that, but yeah, keep going. When you pair the heavy handed story with a bunch of future cursing, like Bullcark and the cat boy exclaiming Selena's spit, (laughs) which is just too much. The comic starts to get downright silly. The art was really great though. I just, I'm not going to read any more of this. I'm giving this a skim it. It's fine if you're a big fan of Batman Beyond, but it just sort of feels like more of what they were doing in the first series without that same bad guy, I guess. I don't know. Maybe the bad guy is still here. Skim it. 
I'm going to take your word for it with the narrator thing. I didn't catch that and I can't, I can't get the thing to come up. It's not clear but, at all. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, I mean like I, I'm, I, I take, I'm taking your word for it, but, uh, okay. First of all, the good, the art is fantastic. It's great. Uh, Max Dunbar is a name that I've heard and I, but I don't remember anything else he's drawn. Has it just been all Batman beyond kind of stuff? I, you know, I, I guess really urban, urban, urban legends, legends according urban to this list, but yeah. I never read that either. I don't read Batman Beyond. I never watched the con- or the cartoon as a kid. That kind of uh, you know, shocks me. It's a really good I, cartoon. I'm, I know it. I know it. I've seen a few episodes, but I was already well into high school when it came out. And so I just like it. I missed it. The comics have never done a single thing for me. I've tried and just like immediately ignored them all. Oh, are you talking about this like um, white text in the in? Yeah. The- that's the narrative. Okay. Like, which yeah, is, yeah. Um, it's like I think a that poem it's, or something. I don't know what I, they're doing. I know. I think I know who it is, and I don't think I should say in case it's a spoiler. All right, don't. But say. if you if you look at the first couple of pages, it should be pretty clear if you know anything about you know Batman even a little bit. Okay. <laughs> the the future slang is nonsensical. Bull, Bull Clark was like one example but there were multiple and we're not even uh, that far in the future like bruce wayne was just around a few was years alive ago. right yeah yeah and like um, for some reason we're still cussing like people did you know during the civil war during like <laughs> so, deadwood right yeah, yeah. you've seen deadwood we use all the same cuss words yeah what the hell and but yeah the art is the art is great Kelly and Lansing are wonderful writers that I like very much, but I, this did nothing for me yeah. story-wise. Um, in fact, I thought I didn't read the solicit in advance, but based on the questions that they ask, like I know the answer to most of the questions, like who's stuck in old Gotham who never left. Where did all the green go? I got it. I know who the answers are a, B and C because I've read Batman more than three times. Sure. And uh, that's it's fine that it's obvious to to me, but it's also not exciting, right? It's not it's not exciting. Uh, I do love I do love the kind of trope of future city built on top of the ruins of the old one. Like I love a story that goes down under the I mean, ground sure. and it's just like a normal city. Just feel like we've seen a lot of that. <laughs> oh sure, and uh, sure we have. And again, like you said. You're telling me that in like mm, 50 years, they have built up so much of this futuristic Gotham City that all of old Gotham City is underground. I don't know if I buy that. Well, to be perfectly fair, Joe, they did build a completely future version of Gotham that took place like in a year that they completely tore down in less than six months. <laughs> if you I think mean, of a future state was like, when is I this happening? This happened in like a month. You know, <laughs> I guess that's true. It's a skim it, man. Like you might like yeah. it if you love Batman beyond. I, I, I really, don't. I don't need the cat kid. That, it, that was just too much. The cat boys. You know what? I, I'm not going to ding them for the name because it, to me, it read like they are experiments because Batman was like, Oh, let me guess your name's Kyle. And to me, that said that there are a lot of them and they're all named Kyle because he had a number attached as well, like Kyle something 401. I mean, I guess, but that's not what the splicers even were. The splicers were literally like teens that just messed around with their DNA like they were doing designer drugs. Yeah, I don't know. It wasn't clear, like you said. Yeah.
from possible bat futures to hypothetical Superman presence. It's Superman colon the last days of Lex Luthor number one from DC Black Label. It's 48 pages for $6.99. It's written by Mark Wade. Pencils by Brian Hitch. Inks by Kevin Nolan. Colors by David Barron. And letters by Richard Starkings himself and Tyler Smith, both of Comicraft. Here's your solicit. Mark Wade and Brian Hitch reunite to tell a tale centered on their favorite superhero. Superman learns Lex Luthor is dying, and he wants the Man of Steel to help him find the cure for whatever is causing his rapid decline. While the world wants to say good riddance to Luthor, Superman will go to the ends of the universe, through different dimensions, and across time to save his foe. But just why does he want to save the person who spent his life trying to destroy him? And will he even be able to find the solution? I'm going to put odds. I'm going to put odds in favor of no, he does not find the solution. Okay. What do you you're think? betting he dies. All right. I'm I, betting he dies. Okay. I, I bet you're right because I think that's the only reason this is a black label book. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, there is that, but but I mean, even just the fact that they're doing this kind of idealized version of DC with a terminally ill Lex Luthor, whether he dies or not, you know, it's kind of like, they sidestepping continuity one way or the other. I don't know of too many people on the face of the planet Earth that love Superman more than Mark Wade. Brian Hitch is one of the greatest comic book artists of the past 20 years. Kevin Nolan is an artistic legend, even when he is, quote unquote, just the inker. Man, it's him. When he's doing Hitch, I love Brian Hitch. Don't get me wrong. But when Nolan's doing Hitch, holy hell. Yeah, it looks and good. we'll get into it. Oh. It is impossible not to be excited about a project like this. Maybe you're dead inside, I guess, but I'm not. And I couldn't wait. Thankfully, Wade and his collaborators deliver. The solicit says it all. Lex is dying and Superman drops everything to try and save him. Literally, just stops what he's doing. But why? Now, I trust Wade to deliver an answer before the series is over. Otherwise, we have to have a conversation about Superman's ability to prioritize. <laughs> In the meantime, Wade establishes the deep history these two men share, whether they both know it or not. Wade draws on the often retconned fact that Lex spent some of his childhood in Smallville, which contributes a key part of the story's mystery. Time management skills aside, Wade's Superman is everything that I want the character to be, and his Lex is truly scary, even in his vulnerable state. He can't resist making his archenemy's life a living hell despite the fact that Superman's probably the only person in the universe that can save him. The art by the three-man team of Hitch, Nolan, and Baron is simply resplendent. I don't know if I've ever used that word on the Two Edit Nerd comic book podcast. It's resplendent. Every Between single this element and Ruben on the page, I'm going to have to take your thesaurus away. <laughs> Rubenesque. Every single element on the page is rendered in such loving detail. Superman is a larger-than-life hero with human relatability. Lex has that Hackman-esque smirk. The action is bombastic. Every person depicted, whether they are full panel, quarter panel, or ant-sized in the background, is full of humanity, and Superman's world is full of wonder. It is really breathtaking. Superman, The Last Days of Lex Luthor Number 1, is all I hoped it would be. Are there lingering questions? Well, of course there are. It's a miniseries, and this is just the first issue. But 
I am confident that this group of creative juggernauts will answer them. I'm giving this comic a huge buy it. Yeah, this is almost review proof. It's like a knockout. It's it just, you've got an amazing creative team telling an incredible Superman story. I'm not going to harp on the fact that it's black label. It didn't feel like it needed to be black label to me, but whatever. I get it. There's stuff going on with Superman right now. You should never spend any time thinking about black label when considering the quality of the book. I'm not saying the quality. does not matter. I'm not saying the quality. I'm just saying when you line it up with other black label titles we've got where they're doing certain things or the tone is a certain way or we're cussing or showing Batman's, you know, hog or something along those lines. This doesn't really fall into any of those categories of what I think of as adult Right. This is just an excellent it, Superman story. Black Label is not necessarily adult. I, it just means free of the constraints of continuity. And it could be adult if they want it to be. I suppose. This was excellent. This was just excellent. I love the way they depicted the Phantom Zone. It was so perfect. <laughs> it's yeah. just perfect. Scary, man. Scary. Yeah, it's great. You know, and like, because the Phantom Zone's silly. If you think about it, it's just silly. And they've never really effectively oh, done much with it. The bottle city of Candor, man. Well, sure. That, when they showed the bottle city of Candor, like their version of it, yeah. I was just like, oh my God. It looks great. Yeah. It's so cool looking. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm giving this a huge buy it and I'm excited to see where it goes. I, I don't think Lex lives either. So I can't take your bet. I think he dies in the end of this. So. Yeah. I mean, uh, However, I'll bet uh, I'll make a huge bet right now that at some point in the next couple of issues, I think this is three issues. Uh, they definitely go to the future to see if the Legion of Superheroes can save them. Probably. And I, I cannot wait to see Mark Wade and Brian Hitch do the Legion of Superheroes. Probably. I also think Lex doesn't let Superman save him because he can't let his Ooh. ego handle it. And maybe that's the final like oh, knife yeah. in the heart, right? Oh, yeah. It's like, you couldn't save me, Boy Scout. Yep. <laughs> Not all comics are as easy to follow and understand as Mark Wade written comics. And that's why we're going to talk about pure evil. Pardon me. Purr evil grown P U R R <laughs> get it. Kitty cats. Number one, it's from image is 32 pages. It's three 99. It is written by Mirka and Dolfo with art by Laura Braga inks and background assistant Giovanni Braga, which that's adorable. I assume they're together colors by Brian Valenza. Here is your solicit miniseries premiere there's no escaping the mewing evil rita loves her daughter deb but okay, a, what yeah okay but a dark evil from her past threatens the lives of anyone who gets too close to it can the bond between two women overcome a life built on blood and lies and what secret is lurking in the Mirando family's apartment written by harvey award-winning superstar Mirka and dolfo who works on sweet paprika mercy unnatural and punchline and illustrated by fan favorite laura braga who worked on witchblade future state and the next batman Harley Quinn and DC bombshells commas. You guys commas. That's really bad proofreading. <laughs> yeah. Per evil is a standout story about the relationship between a mother who gave everything for her daughter and a daughter who needs to figure out her role in a world that she's about to doom. There are times when reading comics that it becomes apparent the book has been translated to English and certain aspects of dialogue can get lost in that translation. Now I know Andolfo is Italian, so I'm going to assume that's why some of the dialogue comes off as quirky, but the story also sees characters making the weirdest choices for the sake of the plot, which I think 
is about an ex-rock star that maybe faked her death and could have magic powers. <laughs> Something like that. It's I don't know. Unclear at best, but there are definitely I, I, I think that I think that she got pregnant as a teen. And they kicked her out and, of the band and, because of it, so they and, faked her or, death. Or fa- and she faked her death. I don't know if they kicked her out of the band, but she maybe faked her death because her daughter is this. Well, we, we can't talk about it too much because without spoilers, I think she got pregnant with this creepy monster dude's baby and then went on the lamb. And that's the story. Okay. That but, could be, but, the, but there's something wrong with the daughter, right? It's unclear at best, but there are definitely heads exploding in panels while character is also holding a gun. <laughs> so <laughs> it gets confusing because like I said, the character that may have powers also has a gun, not just a gun, a whole arsenal at that but okay, she may see, or may not need them i don't know here's what here's what i think i think it's the daughter that has powers if we have not expressed that enough it's very unclear right there are some attempts at humor that don't quite land again i'll mark that up to translation but there's also clues to the overarching mystery that just come out of nowhere and there's an angry racist grandmother and a rock band with a maybe dead singer that has to be connected to the mysterious tattooed woman who may have head exploding powers and a daughter that dresses like a My Hero Academia character. The first issue hits you with just so much and it's confusing at best and completely forced at worst. Like the main good guy who has nothing to do with this, just knows stuff about this band and identifies a tattoo that nobody in the band had or something. I just don't get it. Well, he says that the singer had an identical tattoo, but they show the singer of the band and she doesn't have any tattoos. Yeah, at least I, I think that visible. that's maybe kind of a, I think that might be a, a, a hiccup in the art art versus script, but maybe yeah, like he says, he does say the line that she has a tattoo just like that singer. Right. And it's like, okay, you gotta show me that though. And you showed me the singer yeah. and it's not there. The art is solid, but I have no clue where the story is going or even what the creative team was trying to set up here. Maybe things fall into place with issue number two, but after reading number one, I cannot tell you what per evil is about or why the characters act so damn weird. Even if read in Italian, I don't think I would know where this plot was going. I'm giving this a leave it. It, it, it just, yeah, man, it didn't make any sense. It didn't make any goddamn sense. And don't tell me it yeah. does or don't tell me, well, that's part of the deal. I, I get it. If, I there's a, if there's a mystery, I understand that. But when you have characters just like breaking and entering into people's apartments that would normally never do anything like that and saying out loud, like, why am I doing this? Well, you're obviously doing it to push the plot forward that I can barely follow, you know? Yeah. Like the guy, the guy talks out loud the entire time and right. then somebody calls him out for it. If the neighbor wasn't such a goddamn uh, borderline perv, know, right? Know it all. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, um, the mom and the daughter are always yelling. I obviously think there's something wrong going on but there. Like, now is not the time to do your chores. Like why? It's the afternoon. Uh, what are we yeah. doing? I'm going to, I'm going to watch, <laughs> I'm going to watch them like a hawk every moment of every day and then walk into their apartment when they're not around. And then yeah, like, yeah, no, if it wasn't for that guy, none of this would have happened. She's also able to enter his apartment at, and at will as well. So either no one locks her doors or she, maybe she's a spy with powers or some shit. Fine. Well, he, I, so <laughs> I don't, I don't think, the, I don't think the mom has powers. I think, I think the daughter has powers and here's why, because when the evil dad shows up, who is the lead singer of the band, 
with his cronies, he like teleports away or he was astrally projecting. He was, he was an astral projection. He says that. Yeah. So So like the dad is a wizard or something. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that, I think that the lead singer and this blonde woman had a baby and she ran with the baby and faked her death. And now evil dad wizard is back. But also I think because of the unholy union, the daughter is some sort of hairless cat demon. I guess that's like killing dudes for some reason. It's just like, even if I understand that to be the plot accurately. Yeah. It's needlessly complex. like why? Uh, the art is nice. The art is nice. The art is nice. It, it's a leave it though. This yeah. comic is, it's nonsense. Spider Woman is great, but it's time for me to be myself. To be Firestar. Let's end the show with a party. It's that time of year again. It is the X-Men Hellfire Gala 2023. Number one. It's a one shot from Marvel Comics. It's 80 pages for $8.99. It's a lot, it's a lot of pages in this comic. It's written by Jerry Duggan and Jonathan Hickman. Bet you didn't know that. Don't get too excited. Art and colors by Various. Letters by Virtual Calligraphy, aka Victorious Cockblock. No specific individual yeah, named. Just, I think the whole gang was involved, maybe. Lettered know. by committee, which yeah. kind of goes along with everything I'm about to say in my review. Covered by Phil Noto. Here's your solicit. The fall of X begins here. The Hellfire Gala is always the biggest event of the season, but this year's will change everything for Krakoa. What is meant to be mutant kind's biggest night becomes their biggest nightmare as the fall of X begins. All your favorite X-Men are going to be left reeling after this one. Shocking revelations, stunning betrayals, horrifying tragedy, impossible deaths, and of course, the most glamorous looks of the year, all in one cannot miss package. You know what? I'm going to say this for them. Shocking revelations, stunning betrayals, horrifying tragedy, impossible deaths, glamorous looks, all present in this comic book. Mm, I'll take, I'm going to say one, the glamorous looks. I feel like they, they phoned it in. I mean, you know, stunning betrayal. If you, if everything you're else, reading, everything else. Yes. You read the story from a certain the way. looks they phoned it in this year. I'll talk about it when it's my turn. But. Well, you know what? Yeah. I thought that kind of too. All right, we'll get to it in a move that surprises exactly. No one. This issue begins with Ms. Marvel's big resurrection on Krakoa. What a happy occasion. Well, don't get used to it. There are 15 names on the cover of the Hellfire Gala 2023 one shot. And boy, does it show. Oh, yeah. While the book looks good more often than not, it still looks like it was done by committee. Despite the presence of heavyweights like Adam Kubert and Pepe Larraz. The scene depicting the new X-Men team drawn by Russell Dowderman is bright and joyful while it lasts. And I must say, I love that of all the looks in the Hellfire Gala 2023, the Juggernauts is just juggy with a bow tie on the outside. Yeah, you know. Which I thought was delightful. After that, though, the issue becomes a brutal slog. No spoilers here. We're not going to discuss anything that happens. But the best I can say about the story is that Duggan shakes up the mutant status quo in a big way. Orcus and Dr. Stasis execute their master plan, and we even get a little bit of context 
for the upcoming stuff like Spider Nightcrawler. That's fair. I, I'm just not sure how excited I am for what's coming up. And adding Ms. Marvel to the mix seems like a truly bizarre move for that character specifically. Considering the events of this issue, Kamala Khan has no place being attached to a story like this. Let me ask you this. And you'll notice all the art starring Kamala Khan was done by one artist. How tacked on does this feel to you? Because it felt completely tacked on to me. If you take Kamala Khan and that aspect of this out of this comic, it reads fine. It reads absolutely fine. I don't know if I agree with the fine part, but... Yeah, I, the fact that the the fact that there were so many artists, like I, fifteen, I, I'm exact. There are fifteen names on the cover. I think but they tacked this on all, here. They're just, not all artists. Yeah, uh, but every like certain sections were handled by specific artists. So, like sure. you said, the Ms. Marvel stuff is all drawn by Adam Kubert. Everything to do with like it's Hellfire Club, it's Hellfire Gala time. Let's, let's see the red carpet unveil the accident. That's all Russell Dowderman. The big stuff at the end, like. The big tragic ending, that's Pepe Larraz. By the way, gorgeous Pepe Larraz. Gorgeous. Two this yeah. week. And, but it, that just makes the issue feel so disjointed because yeah. you jump from one plot to another plot. And so from one artist to another artist over and over and over for right. 80 pages. It's it's too much. Now, I'll give them that all the stuff that happened here, the big shakeup, this was all leading to this in all the X-Books. So we knew something big was coming. The stuff with Miss Marvel, though, there were no hints. Nothing dropped. Absolutely nothing. That, oh, she's going to end up a mutant. Like, I don't know, Dark Web would have been a great place to drop a hint for something like that. But it leads me to believe that they had no plan for this other than get her ready for the movie. And we do that by sticking her in an X-Book because X-Books are selling really well right now. And Kamala Khan is a character that has no business being associated with a story. Look, man, I'm not saying that bright, shiny characters can't be associated with dark stories, but this isn't the, this isn't the place for Ms. This Marvel. feels completely tacked on. Completely tacked on. Like, okay, great. And even the way they're doing it, where, oh, you've been resurrected. And look, I'm just going to spoil this part. You're an inhuman and a mutant. Like, really? So why kill her? If she's both and the X-Men already knew it, why not just tell her you're a mutant? Why did she have to die? Yeah, I mean, they came out with that stuff. Great. Like, they, they Marvel Great. released that scene, the resurrection <laughs> scene. Yeah. So, all of that said, the Hellfire Gala 2023 one-shot is definitely important if you're a fan of what's been happening on Krakoa for the past few years. And I guess time will tell if you're still a fan after you read it. I'm giving this a skim it. I, you're done. Let me talk. <laughs> I just, I, I, have, say I, have exactly so much, I have so much more to say about it, but like, let's talk about that. If, in the if, gang I, keep going, if I keep going on, it'll be, sto- it'll be spoilers. Yeah. Let's gang hang this on the Saturday and we'll, and we'll get a spoiler on it. But yeah, look, man, this could have been 40 pages long. This could have been 40 pages long and it would have been fine and it would have moved the X story along and we're done. And you wouldn't have to bring in 15 people to get it done. And when you do bring in 15 people, I don't think this is me being conspiratorial. It says to me, we completely changed gears on this and we wanted to add a bunch of shit to it. And the shit they wanted to add was this Kamala Khan stuff. This is the fastest turnaround in a death and resurrection I can possibly think of in the Marvel history. I mean, maybe. So, uh, normally, just to put this out there, normally the Hellfire Gala is spread over multiple issues of multiple books. Right. And so, you know, the fact that there are multiple plots being driven along in this one shot, like, you could have said, like, if this was, like, Road to the Gala, 
colon Ms. Marvel. Sure. Right. Fine. Then, then that would have been fine. As it said, they had to kind of Frankenstein everything together. That's just it. It's all sewn together and not well. You can see the marks. It is Frankenstein's body, right? No, this is a definition of a skimmit. And because of the execution, they just sewed it all together. And it feels like a bunch of tacked on shit that they just smashed into one book. You didn't need to do this. It could have been, I'm, we never say this. They could have padded this out into four books. <laughs> you know? Like th- now this is like, normally I roll my eyes whenever Matt gets conspiratorial, but this is me now getting conspiratorial. I think they mashed all these stories into one issue instead of doing the traditional route because they were in such a goddamn hurry to a get Ms. Marvel going again. Yes. And B get the fall of X stuff going finally yeah. after so much lead up. Yeah. And it's like, you guys just like, they couldn't look, they couldn't, I'll, they I'll, couldn't wait for the hellfire gala to be over because the Marvels would be out by then. I'll take and then it, it's too late. I'll take it a step further. Think about all this like road to the fall of X or whatever bullshit that we were like, why are we reading this? Why are they doing this? Why are they putting yeah. this out? This does nothing. They were just padding it, taking their time so they could do this Kamala Khan shit to tie it into the movie. That's it. That is it. I guarantee yeah, man, it. It's, it's all like, it doesn't, it doesn't feel right no. when you read it, it. It just feels like corporate manipulation. Yes. And look, man, I've liked the Krakoa stuff. And again, no huge spoilers, but this changes things for the X-Men, I would say, more than anything that has happened since Powers of X. I don't mind that. I'm fine with that because they've been building towards this in the X books. I'm fine with that. It's just everything altogether, tacking on this other story. It just muddies everything way too much. And then when you do all this big stuff on top of it, you're like, you're doing that too? Okay. It's a skimmit from me as well. They just did too much here. And the stitches are showing. It's just showing. We see you working now, guys. Be smarter than this. Be better. You're taking me out of the kayfabe, you know? Yeah, yes, exactly. Like, I'm all for seeing the story move forward, but this was just like, it's it's just like, did you really have to do it this way? You can find links in our show notes for more details on these comics, if you dare. I know that we talked about some doozies. But now it's time to pick the one issue that didn't distract us with its blarking future slang. Point of order. I I remembered something during your Per Evil review. Kyle the Cat Boy says to Batman when he is investigating, or to Terry before he becomes Batman, Meow, get your face out of my snoot. He uses the word meow instead of now. I'm changing my review to a leave it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, my pick for this week has got to be Superman. There wasn't anything yeah, that even came. Yes, of course it's Superman. There wasn't anything that even came close to being that good. Like, <laughs> and I know, like, look, man, I get it. There's, there's a lot of questions. Like, Superman's really going to stop doing every single thing that he was already doing to just but hypothetically save Lex Luthor. Like there's too much going on in the world, my guy, but it's, that's part of the story, right? Yeah, I get we'll it. Find we'll out. get, we'll we'll get there. We'll get there. Don't overthink it. And, no, I know. I'm just saying like, I know that there are questions, but I'm confident we're, we're going to get them. And with that confidence, this is, that issue was like a warm hug yeah. for me. I, I man, I loved it. It's been a while, but if memory serves, after a long review session, we like to retire to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum to discuss our must-read picks for next week. Joe Patrick, 
these nerds are picking up one comic book from their LCS. Well, for me, my pick of the week is The Sacrificers, number one from Image Comics. It's 40 pages for $3.99. It's written by Rick Remender. With art by Max Fiumara, here's your solicit. (laughs) Series premiere. Tomorrow is a harmonious paradise thanks to five families who make everything perfect for the price of one child per household. Now, as that bill comes due, a son expected to give everything for a family that never loved him and an affluent daughter determined to destroy Utopia must unite to end one generation's unnaturally protracted reign. Rick Remender, writer of Low, Dead of the Glass, Uncanny X-Force, joins forces with superstar Max Fiumara, you know him from Amazing Spider-Man, Four Eyes, and Lucifer, among other places, to take you through the dark science fiction world of The Sacrificers. So obviously, like Rick, Rem- Rick Remender, like when was the last time that dude had a big launch at Image? I'm, I'm definitely on board for it. Well, he did Max the Fiumar- he did the scumbag not too long ago, and it was great. Well, no, scumbag came out a long time ago. Yeah, but he did two scumbag series. <laughs> There was one that wasn't too long ago. It was really good. (laughs) I understand. But like, when was the last time Rick Remender came out with a brand new thing? Like I'm saying, Hey, it's a big deal. when Rick Remender comes out with a big brand new thing. He's great. And this looks outstanding. Max Fiumara. Yeah. Can't beat him. Uh, This to me kind of seems like Shirley Jackson's the lottery or the cabin in the woods with superpowers. Right. It's like sacrifice has to be made to save everybody. And the two people are like, fuck that shit. I'm not doing it. Matt, what's your pick for next week? My pick for next week, even though he's friggin' dead, spoiler alert, is Astonishing Iceman, number one from What's Marvel. What's the matter with you? We, were gonna, we weren't going to spoil it. I won't spoil it. My pick is Astonishing Iceman, number one from Marvel. It's 32 pages, $3.99, written by Steve Orlando with art by Lan Medina. Here is your solicit. The Omega level mutant as you've never seen him before. After the events of this year's can't miss Hellfire Gala, Bobby Drake, aka Iceman, sets his sights on heroic deeds like never before. But mm, does he? As a new situation develops that links Iceman to his Antarctic ice palace, he'll have to be slicker than ever to accomplish his mission before Orcus knows what hit them. An all new adventure that'll push Iceman to the limits of his powers and beyond. Now, Oh, you know what? I think I know what happened. Without spoiling anything from the Hellfire Gala. Yeah. After I read the Hellfire Gala, a thing happens to Iceman. I'll say that. And I went, yeah, okay. If this is not some side story that takes place in the past, but takes place after the Hellfire Gala, I got to know what the hell's going on with Iceman. (laughs) Um, I think he is stuck in the Ice Palace. A, a situation develops that links Iceman to his Antarctic. I, mean, I understand palace. what it's saying, but they're going to have to be creative in showing us how that happens after the events of what happened to him in the pages of the Hellfire uh, yeah. Gala. I mean, who knows? Maybe it's like Frosty's hat, right? Or the yeah, seat of his power. I don't know. Like, we, I, we shall see. But I do love the idea that Iceman is a full on Omega level mutant. He is super, super badass. And I love Lamadina. I think Lamadina is fantastic. And Steve Orlando, I'm 50 50 on Steve Orlando anymore. I used to love everything the guy did. I'm about 50 50, but when he's good, he's great. You know what? I think I'm 60 40 on Steve Orlando. All right. I'll I'll give give him him a little more credit. I'll give you 60 40. 60 40. You're welcome, Steve, (laughs) for that extra 10%. (laughs) We call it the Joe Patrick bump. It's a strong F plus in the ziggurat, Steve. Way to go, man. Wow. 
THN trade for the week of August 2nd is Class War. It's a trade paperback from Image Comics written by Rob, Robbie Williams. Art by Trevor Hairsign and Travel Foreman. It's 184 pages for $16.99. Now, this is the original solicit for the series, courtesy of Com.x. And I'm doing that to avoid spoilers. Rest in peace, Com.x. Rest in You know what? <laughs> Apparently, they're still up and running. Oh, the really? It's there. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what they do. Okay, all right. It's there. I went to it. A team of superpowered heroes created by the U.S. government as instruments of American foreign policy helped bring order to a chaotic world. But all is not well. American, the figurehead of the team, is AWOL and angry as hell, posing a major security alert to both the president and the entire nation. But why? What made this national hero take such drastic action and turn his back on the country that made him. And how can the government bring him in without revealing the bloody truth behind their seat of power? This collects Class War 1 through 6 for the first time ever. Now, Joe Patrick, you might be asking yourself, what the hell? Class War? Never heard of it. If you're an old head like me and Matt, you will remember the early 2000s indie comics heyday. Robert Kirkman was making a name for himself. 30 Days a Night was out. Things were a-booming for indies, indies. And all of a sudden, this upstart comic company called Com.X yeah. hit the scene with books like Class War by uh, Williams and Trevor Hairsign and Bazooka Jewels by Neil Googe, which was excellent. And it just struggled to get any books out. Class War limped three issues out and they put out a trade of just the first three issues, like two years after it launched. And then the series took forever to finish. And then com.x just stopped. They stopped making comics. I think and to th- their funding and to got this- pulled. Is it like they didn't get their next Maybe. round of funding and they were like, like who knows? I don't right. know. <laughs> I, I don't know what their business, <laughs> I don't know what their business shot. model was, <laughs> but I mean, look, Trevor, Trevor Hairsign, And then later travel foreman, Trevor Hairsign and travel foreman, both this known the- quant. Known quantities now, now, but this was the first appearance, That's as far as I know, of Trevor Hairsign and Travel Foreman as as comic artists. Definitely and the first the, I remember of them, without a doubt. And they hit the scene with a splash, man. Yeah. But as is often the case with young superstars, Travel Foreman could not get the work done. Nah. It, it was too slow. Or, pardon me, Trevor Hairsign. Trevor Hairsign was slow as hell. And then he got snapped up by Marvel to do like ultimate stuff. And so, yeah, class war. It was a casualty in the early 2000s indie comics race. It's really good. Yeah. I remember forcing this book on people when we worked at Krypton and it suffered from the curse of, okay, we ordered a few because nobody had heard of it. And we read it and went, this is fantastic. Let's get more of those. And then it got, and then it got hot. And then they were like, wizard magazine. Sorry, we can't print them because we're a small company and we don't have enough money. Yeah. So it was just gone. It It was just gone. Mm -hmm. If you want to read these comics along with us, you don't need to give up your firstborn. Do the whole family a favor and add these books to your pull file your comic shop, and your kids will thank you for it. Now, I'm not saying don't get rid of your kids. You know, if you want to, get rid of them. Whatever. Before we sign off for the broadcast day, we wanted to give you a sample of the high-quality programming we've reserved for listeners that 
pay to support our show. That's really kind of a mercenary way to put it. Well, I mean, we got to sell it somehow. You our, know? our lovely and considerate donors. You can hear our entire segment when you support THN on Patreon.com for as little as $1 per month. Take it away, Mr. Jason Sachs. Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. It's time for the latest episode of Who the Hell is This Guy? This time I'll be talking about DC Comics' most famous ghost, Dead Man. Dead Man is one of those odd characters who seem to exist in the background of all the comics companies. He's one of those C-listers who appear in team books and classic team-ups. He's fun enough, but he's never been strong enough to have anything like his own ongoing title. He's certainly had enough years to find his own level, and his level has been a bunch of weird, pretty good comics which don't really ever quite land with an audience. So, Dead Man debuted in Strange Adventures number 205, 1968, written by Arnold Drake and drawn by the always legendary Carmine Infantino. I should mention for you lovers of deep comic book trivia that the original Animal Man series had just finished its run in Strange Adventures just four issues previously. So if you want to accumulate a full run, you have that to look forward to also. Just a little aside there. Anyway, so Dead Man, he's a guy who's, well, he's dead, as in dead, like that parrot in the Monty Python sketch. But he's also kind of alive. I mean, he's really a ghost who's resurrected. And here, let me tell you his origin. So that issue takes us to the circus, which I swear was once a place of legend in America instead of a place full of scary clowns and captive wild animals begging to be free. Well, it still is all that too. But back in the day, kids actually clamored to go to the circus and even ran away to join the circus. In fact, uh, we soon meet a dude named Boston Brand who's not a canner of baked beans or a restaurant where you can buy rotisserie chicken. It's an obscure joke, I realize. But instead, he's a trapeze artist. He's an aerialist who makes his bones by a ginger in his bones. Austin Brand is also a real asshole who actually says about his co-workers crap like, circus people are like children, sick, dangerous children. Running a circus is like conducting a kindergarten where every kid's got a machine gun in his desk. Yeah, Boston has some issues. Well, maybe part of what depresses our lead character is the clothes he's chosen to wear. Putting on a white death's head mask, a flamboyant red fire suit. Boston calls himself Dead Man as he arrogantly wanders the circus tent. As he approaches the tent, Brand is blessed by a turbaned Indian fortune teller who tells him that Ramakrishna watches over his fate. We'll see how true that actual fact is in a few pages. As the story proceeds, we see Brand abuse a few more members of his crew before he ascends up a dauntingly high tower, which is illustrated with real panache by Infantino, I gotta say. Until the next page, we hear crack! Boston's been shot. And a scary looking clown comes over and covers Boston with a sheet. But the Indian mystic has something cryptic to say. Perhaps this is the beginning of that special fate which has long awaited Boston Brand. So Boston Brand is buried, but there's something else. Boston follows a ghostly talking elephant, okay, ghostly talking elephant, through into a rainy mystical place and emerges watching over his own funeral. Ramakushna, the Indian goddess, speaks to Boston through a small tree on the edge of the funeral saying, you shall have the power to walk among men until you have found the one who killed you. 
and she disappears. Touching the body of the circus strongman, Tiny, cute, Boston discovers he can take over his friend's body. Boston realized he had listened to people's comments during his funeral, where one of his fellow performers says the killer had a hook in his right hand. Sorry, he had a hook for his right hand. Important distinction there. As the issue ends with Brand staying in Tiny's body, he vows to hunt down his own murderer. Okay, so quick tangent here. For those of you who aren't in cl- into classic 60s TV or 80s movies starring Harrison Ford, Tommy Lee Jones, the theme of this story is based a bit on the old TV series and later movie called The Fugitive. The name, Dr. Richard Kimball. The destination, Death Row State Prison. The irony, Richard Kimball is innocent. Maybe they might ring a bell, streaming somewhere, I'm sure. In both the movie and TV show, a doctor named Richard Kimball witnesses the murder of his wife at the hands of a one-armed man. Is it the hand of a one-armed man? Sorry, bad writing there. Kimball then hunts down the murderer to seek justice. The Fugitive was still on people's minds at the time of this comic, and Drake took a mystical twist to that iconic tale. Uh, you may not know this. I didn't know this until I was doing research for this piece. The final episode of The Fugitive, which I believe was appeared in 67, was the highest rated TV series ever up to that time, which means like an incredible metric shit ton of people saw that TV show. Excelsior! Oh. <laughs> That is it for THN 710. Next week, we have a very special Cosmic Longbox birthday episode for the Internet's Joe Patrick. We're going to be continuing our Death of Superman coverage with Reign of the Superman Part 1. And let me tell you, my body is not ready, but it's Joey's birthday, so happy birthday, you jerk. If you need more THN in the meantime, join us for the THN Cover to Cover Gang Hang. We do it on Saturdays at 11 o'clock Central. Check out our Discord for more details on that. Joe Patrick, what else can you do with our Discord? You can get in on the action before we even air the show. We've got an episode discussion thread every week for just that. Or maybe you just want to answer the question of the week. This week's question is courtesy of Jim from the Discord. As a kid, I wanted to see my comic heroes on screen more than anything and have loved seeing them realized in the MCU. But the constant filming of all licenses has made me realize that some beloved stories are better on the page. Which piece of media do you love too much to want to see them attempt a live-action film of, and why? Film or TV show, I sure, would Sure, sure. Live-action, period. Please do also keep your question of the week suggestions coming, and you can sign up for our Discord with the link at twoheadednerd.com slash Discord, where we've got channels for all of our segments, or you can send an MP3 to twoheadednerd at gmail.com, and we'll put you on the Ding Dang Show. I created a new channel uh, just yesterday, or maybe it was even today. Time's a flat circle, I couldn't say. It's the THN Wayback Machine. I've been listening to a lot of our old episodes, and I think it could be fun to just have like discussions about old episodes. And I haven't posted anything there yet. Oh, no, trust me. I feel like there's some gold in them, Dar Hills. Oh, you mean in the Discord? That's why. <laughs> in the Discord, right. <laughs> okay. If you want. Yeah. Good luck with So, that. yeah, there's a channel in the Discord uh, to talk about old THN stuff that uh, I've been revisiting. Maybe you're catching up as a newer fan. Do it there. If you're new to this show and you're working on your MP3 to tell us to f*** 
off rather than listen to any more. I assure you, it's only because you haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run of THN in our digital long box archive at TwoHeadedNerd.com. After you listen to some of those old ones, you can discuss them. And Joe Patrick's welcome to THN Wayback Machine channel in our Discord. THN is a listener-supported podcast. It wouldn't be possible without the generosity of donors like our patron, Darren Neely. I know that name. Now, Why do I know that guy? Now, you do know that name because Darren Neely is a guy we met at Comic-Con years ago. He's okay. the creator of Chase Van Bolt, the oh, things. okay. Darren Neely. Uh, super nice guy. And he has been a patron for a long time, but we still got an email from Patreon saying... Welcome to your new patron, Darren Neely. Oh, maybe he changed his amount or something? Maybe he had to cancel and he came back. Who knows? Who yeah. can say? Oh. But Darren Neely, longtime supporter of THN. Thank you, Darren. Regardless, that guy's giving us 200 bucks a month, so we shouldn't, you know, that's nothing to snark at here. Maybe right? that's why he had to cancel. <laughs> if you Maybe like, that's why he had to cancel for a while. If you like what you hear every week, just like Darren does, it's easy to support the show. You can sign up to be a patron at patreon.com backslash two-headed nerd. Before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to Flash and Green Lantern writer Jeremy Adams's cousin Doozy, who Matt met in a work Zoom this week, of all places. Doozy, a.k.a. Scott, immediately outed himself as a comic nerd, and after Matt shamelessly plugged our show, he went on to mention that he was Jeremy's cousin. And now, we've got Jeremy Adams's personal email. That's right, the current Green Lantern writer, so be sure to send us any criticisms that you like to share. We'll pass them right along. Until oh, next time, bet. true believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might take a steaming doozy on your Green Lantern comics. This is the Two-Headed Nerd, signing off.